Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, and especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation at Wesley Seminary, Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is David Drury, a regular guest on the show. He's the author of, oh, half a dozen or more books. Uh, so you can see his stuff on Amazon and other places. And he is the uh, chief of staff for uh, the Wesleyan Church denomination. And he is my brother. And I always love digging into the word with him. Our text this week is from Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 3 and verses 14 through 25. So Joshua 24, 1 through 3 and 14 through 25. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, pause it and hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show along to others, send them a text or pop it on social media, get the word around. And if you want to click on the clickable in the show notes, uh, there's an opportunity to support the show financially uh, to help uh, our producers for all the work that they volunteer. Uh, so thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Dave. Yeah, Joshua 24, kind of the first, first three verses. Three and then 14 through 25? Exactly. Yep. Okay. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel at Shechem, and he called to the elders of Israel and to its chieftains and to its judges and to its overseers. And they stood forth before God, and Joshua said to all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Your forefathers dwelled across the Euphrates long ago, Terah, father of Abraham, and father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from across the Euphrates and led him to the land of Canaan, and I multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. And now picking up in verse 14. And now fear the Lord and serve him in wholeness and truth, and put away the gods that your forefathers served across the Euphrates and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it be evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose today whom you would serve, whether the gods that your forefathers served across the Euphrates, or whether the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But I and my household will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord, our God, it is he who brings our forefathers and us up from the land of Egypt, from the house of slaves, and who has wrought before our eyes these great signs and guarded us on all the way that we have gone and among all the peoples through whom midst we have passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites, the inhabitants of the land, we too will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. 
and he will not put up with your crimes and offenses, for you should forsake the Lord and serve alien gods. He shall turn back and do harm to you and put an end to you after having been good to you. And the people said to Joshua, no, for we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses for yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And now put away the alien gods that are in your midst and bend your hearts to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord we will serve and his voice we will heed. And Joshua sealed a pact for them for the people that day and set it for them as statute and law at Shechem. The Lord breaths the reading of his word. Yeah, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, for your word which made all things, for your word that came to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Jacob's sons. And for your powerful word that through Moses liberated your people, Israel, led them through the wilderness and brought them up to this very moment that we are studying today. Let me give you thanks also for the written word of God, that the word of God has been preserved and handed on so that we may hear it and heed it and that we may, by your word and spirit, commit ourselves to you covenant with you to serve you and not chase after other gods. So, Father, we pray that your word would come fresh and with power among us even this very hour as Dave and I study and offer our questions and thoughts, and as all those who listen in, that they too may, even by your spirit right now, uh, be stirred within to be open to receiving and bearing on behalf of the church and the world the word of God revealed, written, and proclaimed. Pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is your living word. In his name we pray. Amen. So what, uh, what captures your eye, uh, initial observations about this text? Just zooming in on the text mm. at hand. Mm. Well, it's... Uh it almost feels like, I don't know if you've ever been in an environment like a classroom or even like a church reading where somebody hands you a script you have to read for a role, but it almost feels like Joshua has a script that he's reading and playing a part, and then the people are playing a part too. They're, they're like the Greek chorus <laughs> of this yeah. chapter, where, and it almost feels like they're play acting, which makes me feel like there's more to this than I know just from reading it in English. Like it feels like there's something else going on here that almost is like a, uh, a covenant, right? It sounds covenantal. Like, and then of course, Joshua's the big skeptic. Like, I don't think you're going to be able to pull this off. And you know how even like, it reminds me of even bartering with people in the middle East today, mm -hmm. how you're both playing a role and you both know it. Like, oh, that'll be $14. And he's like, I've got 10 kids to feed and that kind of a thing. <laughs> it feels a little like there, and I don't know if I'm projecting, you know, sort of a Middle Easternness onto Joshua, but it feels a little that way, like, uh, like they're both playing a role. The other thing is the word idolatry. And I mean, he makes such a big deal out of 
the idols back. Like he brings up Abraham and Terah seemingly only just to bring up that they were idolaters. Like Mm -hmm. they used to worship idols and then you might go back to those idols, which of course they wouldn't know anything about those idols. So it's kind of strange that he brings up these idols from across the Euphrates that literally no Hebrews have worshiped for five centuries, maybe like four centuries, like a long time. And like, they would be like, why would we worship those idols? And I think he's, he's more bringing it up because of its ludicrousness. Uh, Like, as though we were to, I were to tell my children, you might want to be Christians or you could be like, you could follow Zoroaster. Like, right, right, right. Know who that is. But then idolatry just keeps coming up. And it seems like the big push of this is idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. And then, of course, it's a bit of a setup, us knowing the broader story, because it's like, boy, yeah, Joshua was right. They couldn't pull this off. Uh, they couldn't serve the Lord, but they agreed to it. So in a way, it's an ominous foreshadowing. Hmm. Um, even if you didn't know the rest of the book, like if you were just reading through Scripture and read Joshua and read this, you would, even without any knowledge of Israel, you'd be like, wow, that sounds like a big task. But they said it. And then, of course, at the end, the sealed the pack part, there feels like there's kind of like a, this is very legal sounding in a way. It's Part of it feels like a drama where people got scripts and part of it feels like almost a court proceeding where it's like, Mm. you're agreeing to this. This is like, this is a, this is a a covenant. This is a legal arrangement and you better live up to your end of the bargain. Those are the stuff that jump out to me. Yeah. I think those two aspects really fit well together, right? Because the drama, you know, we talk about a, you know, I grew up watching law and order episodes on, you know, infinite repeat on, was it A and E or T and T? I can't remember. I think it was on A and E when I was, yeah. <laughs> it was T and T later. But yeah, oh that sound. But courtroom is just sort of intrinsically dramatic. But there's also a kind of formalism. There's a roles. People are playing roles, and so I feel like the kind of the legality of it and the sort of drama of it, in a way, sort of they seem so different at first glance, but they really do come together. Boy, when you read the, there were two things that grabbed me. One was exactly what you pointed out in verse two, uh, that, that your fathers served other gods. Mm. And, and I like the possibility that this is both this kind of remote possibility while also implying that this is a, this is, continues to be a live temptation, you know, cause he, we, we skipped over some as the lectionary recommended and, and the passage would have been exceedingly long otherwise but it, but he does review the, the the coming out of Egypt but he does not mention the golden calf and the idolatry that was oh, committed yeah. by their parents and that some of the elders gathered here would have been children under 20 who might have been at that festival right so the the threat of idolatry is actually a live one and he's engaging maybe in a clever rhetorical thing here to say this is your deep past and you're right, those, those Euphrates gods are distant, but the threat of idolatry remains. I mean, it's not a, given the fact that they didn't yet have the law, it's quite possible, if not likely, that a lot of the Hebrews in Goshen and Egypt practice all kinds of syncretistic religion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because it was around. Plus, there's quite a few people who are included in the Hebrew host includes Egyptians that kind of joined them on the way out that's mentioned in Exodus and passing. So some of these could have been straight up, straight up idolaters and Moses himself 
until he went out in the wilderness. I mean, it's not like, I don't think he would have lasted long in the palace if he wasn't just kind of going through the religious motions of Egyptian. Mm. So there's a part of me that wants to say on the one hand, the idolatry, the paganism of Abraham's family is this distant thing. Mm. But at the same token, it's this been this recurring temptation uh, among the people. And as you said, prophetically uh, will be a great uh, challenge in their lives when they enter into, to, as they settle, they've already entered in, but now as they settle into Canaan land. So that, that really struck out. They served other gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I, God, took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. And that's another, you know, now we're back to Canaan, which is between the two great rivers, between Euphrates, where he came from, and and the Nile, where you guys have been liberated only a generation ago. Yeah, I love the drama. I, like you said, are you sure? Like he's kind of, I, I, I thought of the Middle Eastern context. You and I were talking before the show about like, yeah, we're, you know, we're, we like the Bible and we know a couple things, but we're not the real pros when it comes to, you know, original culture and context. But having said that, you and I have traveled in the Middle East. We both went with our dad separately when we were 12, 13 right. to Israel. Uh, and then we went with him to Turkey not that long ago, a decade or so ago. Right. You've been to the Middle East otherwise, and you've been, you've traveled more around the world. I took my, I took my own son. Right, of uh, course. Again, just yeah, you took ago, Max. Uh, when he was 18. And even outside the Middle East, I mean, the kind of bartering and kind of back and forth dynamics yeah. around hospitality are actually really common outside of modern Western societies. You get it even with some street vendors in the U.S. in a big yes. city. Uh, and you'll occasionally happen. get it in the Old South a little. Yeah. Occasionally you'll pick it up in the Old South where it's like you don't take the first answer as the real answer and not even the second. You kind of have to, you know, like I remember being taught that. Was it our uh, uncle, Uncle Uncle Mimo, <laughs> Uncle Elmer, who married a woman from down South. And when they moved down there, how they had to learn these little tricks like, when they invite you over, you're supposed to say no. Right. And then when they invite you again, you say no again. And it's only on the third invitation that you say yes, like these little, you know. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it funny how every culture has that? Asia is the one I'm still, I mean, man, each of those cultures have their own little set of rules. And that, I mean, in a way, this, you know, clearly stuff's going on here that a Westerner, you know, just like that, our uncle had to get used to the culture of even in the South in America. Just imagine, you know, like the, the thousands of years between now and then and the cultural differences. So I think there's stuff going on here that maybe even the Amorites weren't, wouldn't have noticed <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, as onlookers that there's a thing going on here between God, Joshua, and the people. And there's probably some spokesperson for the per- people, I think. But I can't imagine them all shouting these phrases under combined inspiration in unison. Again, that's why it feels like a little bit of a, a play acting here. And, and of course, it may be the narrator sort of putting these words into their mouth that um, this was the agreement, this was the covenant that's sort of renewed here in Joshua towards the, the end of it here, the last, last part, the last chapter itself. I, I think it's so much, it's interesting because this is at the end after they've taken 
the territory, the land, Mm -hmm. which is the key theme of the book of Joshua is land. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, or at least one of the core three themes, the word land is used. I had to do a research project on this book for another author who wrote about the book of Joshua. And it was fascinating to read about all of the territory and the borders and everything and how the actual borders they were supposed to take. A lot of people claim that they only actually took 10% of what they were supposed to take. And that part of it was sort of, Hey, this is a huge amount of area. The word Mm. land is used almost a hundred times in the book over and over and over again, and not a very long book. And so land is the theme, but then the theme of this chapter is not land. Hmm. It's, it's idolatry. And it's kind of like, okay, you got this now, but like, you, here are the terms and conditions right, on this thing. You the morality clause of the, <laughs> I mean, the, mor- perfect. the morality clause of the promised land uh, contract, which they will <laughs> proceed to fail in the next, in, in judges, right? Judges is really right. a, I know we're getting into the broader context here, but I think when it comes to this chapter, it's really this idolatry theme. And I feel like for me, it's helpful to to think about how did they receive that? Because here they were out in the desert. We don't have a lot of record of them after the calf, the golden calf, mm-hmm. facing other gods. So I, I wonder, is idolatry a persistent problem for them? Or is it more that God and or Joshua are like, okay, now we're in Canaan, they're going to be exposed again to Asherah poles and all this other stuff. Yeah. It's sort of like sending their kid off to the big city, like like a parent might yeah. like, you need to watch out for those places or you're going to go to Amsterdam, make sure you don't go into the red light district kind of thing where they're cautioning the children of God about this stuff. You know, So does it come as a little bit of surprise for these people that literally were born and lived, or, or at least they were small children, like you said, in the desert, they're not used to stuff. That's they right. They're not tempted to worship Baal. They will be, but they're not yet. So it's almost like a warning of something that's not really a problem is, is my suspicion. No, I think that's a good insight because for the, so for the older generation, the wilderness generation that died off, the gods that would have been temptations were the gods of, of Egypt and the exodus itself and the domination of slavery uh, would give at least uh, that's a helpful reason to not worship those. Yeah, you know, that's that's the god of our oppressors. And then you add to the fact that they got to bear witness to the plagues, right? And which are all lined up with the gods of Egypt. You know, mm-hmm. they saw the 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 top ten Egyptian gods are just no match for. Adonai. But, you know, this is a generation who didn't get to see those plagues, right? They're mentioned actually in the passage that we jumped over. Some of the plagues are. And so that kind of sense of the power of God may have been helpful. And interestingly, you mentioned the wilderness. I think that that is good. And and we just did that passage, you know, a couple weeks before for our listeners discussing the, the golden calf scene. And interestingly there, that is primarily a breaking of the the second commandment, which is to make a graven image, because they say that this image, this calf, is Adonai who brought you out of Israel, or brought you out of Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. So they're making an image of the God who saved them. 
Whereas, where, because like you said, out in the wilderness, there's just not a lot of paganism. It's more just nothing. <laughs> and whereas now as they enter into the land, there's a whole lot of other gods that they might chase after, you know, to have before God, the jealous God, the holy God. I, I noticed one other thing. As you were reading, the translation you brought today did a slightly different uh, move on the syntax in verse 20, I think. Would you be willing to read 20? I think yours is better and, and will be raises an interesting question. Can you so read verse like 20 he, again? He will not put up with your crimes and your offenses, for you should forsake the Lord and serve alien gods. He shall turn back and do harm to you and put an end to you after having been good to you. Yeah, so it's Art. it's this it's the same point, but my the I have ESV in front of me today, and it it makes it sound more conditional, and I like yours better. Verse twenty, it says ESV's got if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, and the emphasis, which I imagine yours is 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 tracking the original a little tighter to kind of say. No, this is you're going to do this. <laughs> and and when you do, you know, he's going to come after you and it sounds a little more prophetic at least the way that it it's kind of laid out, you know. Um, you know, and then, I, and I don't know ahead. if I inverted a couple words there. It does have a conditional nature to it in this translation, you know, saying should you yes, forsake yes. the Lord. Uh, so there is it's still conditional. Um, we'll read 20, though, because I think the, or, the the word order was different, though, and it put the emphasis differently. For should you forsake the Lord and serve alien gods, he shall turn back to you okay. and put it in after having yeah, the, the, So it, it's still conditional, but I think it's a little bit more. I mean, it's like he, he, he does just up in 19, you will not be able to serve the Lord. He will not put up. I mean, it's sort of a. Again, I don't know how much of that's play acting, but it's definitely. That must be what I was thinking of, verse 19. But yeah, that came out clear in mind. Maybe I just found that the, maybe the if in English is just sounds a little softer right. and versus the subjunctive should makes it kind of like, you know, a, a less remote, but that could be a connotation and impression on my part. So I might've made a mountain out of molehill. What, what translation are you using today? This is alter again. As I'm so do you have Alter's whole uh, Old Testament? Yeah, I'm kind of addicted. Good for you. To Alter. Uh, well, I've, that's on my wish list, man. <laughs> that's on my Christmas wish list. <laughs> well, usually you would say that to someone that doesn't actually give you Christmas presents. But since we're going to be together for Christmas, I suppose <laughs> I should write that down. <laughs> oh, that wasn't for you. That's for dad. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've been wanting to, to, to check out some of his others. I only have the first second Samuel and the Psalter are the only ones of his that I've gotten. And those were earlier when they came out before the whole thing was out. Well, I just, yeah, it just sounded striking. Well, yeah, all that, a lot the translations and material throughout this. Yeah. It's, it's a very, it has a cumbersome, like it doesn't read like the rest of Joshua. Um, mm -hmm. It, it reads like it was written by a different writer actually. Huh? Uh, and I don't know Ooh. what the, what the it would be interesting to know what other people you're talking to that are actual scholars say about Joshua and its assemblage because it it for me I think this is probably a prime candidate for 
you know, sort of using, and I don't know if this is more of a legal kind of a way of, of representing the covenant, Yeah, but I mean, certainly, certainly people that were collecting these and prop- propagating these texts were from later years. I mean, it only took them like 20 minutes to start worshiping other idols. So it's, right. it's not, it's not as though, I mean, uh, the, they knew the people that are reading this knew, oh man, we, we didn't live up to what we agreed there. Well, yeah, related to that, I mean, even beyond compositional theories, just verse 26 signals that this text is different from the rest of Joshua, because verse 26 says, right after we stopped our selection, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And he took a large stone and set it up under the terebinth that was there by the sanctuary of the Lord, and this is in Shechem. So the possibility that this that some version of what we have here in 24 was right. actually an older text. You know how there's like, right. when you think in the, in the new Testament, right. You, especially like in Luke, you can kind of tell when Luke is narrating as a well-trained Greco Roman uh, stylist. And when he is just handing on these sort of previously Aramaic statements of Jesus Right. So Jesus' voice in Luke always sounds like a, you know, like a, <laughs> a wandering prophet from Palestine, whereas the narrator sounds like a, you know, well trained Greco Roman uh, <laughs> you know, uh, writer. And so it's not implausible to think of this as maybe there's a, there is some ancient, even more, and the whole thing's ancient, obviously, but a even more ancient text that has been woven into the book of Joshua. Mm-hmm. Either that or the author is intentionally shifting style in order to signal that, you know, to make That's it sound old, possible. right? To kind of yeah. sound more old fashioned. That's just right. as possible. Yeah, I could I could see that being true. E- yeah, either one can work. The the point stands for interpreting the text before us is that this has this kind of legally binding document and I and I have the impression that the primary purpose is to get them to say, you, you know, we are witnesses, right. To kind of get yeah. them to sign the dotted line as witnesses against themselves, yes. you know, and that this was not simply imposed upon them by Joshua, but mm. this is something they, that the, the elders, the chieftains, the judges, the, the overseers gathered and mm-hmm. formally committed to remain faithful to the covenant and so, like you said, if you're reading straight through, you might not catch that. Although, interestingly, by the time this was assembled into a book, the, the failures of Israel were well known. Uh, <laughs> and so this is a kind of, which means it's implying, it's inviting, even the, in its original form as a written text, it's inviting the audience of its own time to renew that covenant, right? That's what's True. implicit, I think, in the text. Right. That's um, a good point. Yeah, well, let's take a break and come back and zoom out a little bit. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, David Drury, and we're looking at Joshua chapter 24, uh, the whole chapter, but especially the verses 1 through 3 and then 14 through 25. So now let's... I mean, we've already zoomed out a little, but we can zoom out even further if we want to draw on whatever context we desire. I'll mention for our listeners and for you, David, that we did the Old Testament readings uh, for 
most of the year on the show this year, 2009, uh, 2020, excuse me. And the year A in the lectionary, the readings are mostly from the Pentateuch and then just like two little passages, one from Joshua and one from Judges, basically to kind of signal because year B, which we won't be doing next year, but we'll do some year, picks up the story right at first Samuel. And then year C does mostly prophets, right? So there's kind of a, so this is just kind of wrapping up the, the, the Joshua with you this week and, and one passage from judges next week with Mandy. There's a kind of few Joshua judges here to just kind of wrap up the, the, the narrative. So that being said, no pressure to put you on the spot, but this is basically our only episode on the entire book of Joshua this, uh, <laughs> this, this uh, year. Uh, so yeah. I say zoom out. We can talk about the whole book if we yeah, want. Well, like, Joshua. yeah, you mentioned that, that land theme. I know recently I was in Joshua in my own personal study and was kind of like, it's really action packed in the opening chapters. And then there's like half the book is on like, okay, this group is going to live there and this group's going to live there. It's a very, uh, it can feel like you're reading a, a little geography lesson and like, uh, th- there's a formal quality even to it. Like the official, sort of plots of land, the apportionments for right. the different people and all that. Sort of the Dan to Beersheba and Mediterranean to the Jordan and all those kind of things. And then each tribe has this and that place, which there's, there's very little evidence that that most of that actually happened. So a lot of it's sort of like, this is how it'll happen. And then it does seem like they went into the Canaan and then it was sort of like, they just sort of scattered about and a lot of the different tribes didn't actually take control of the land. And there's a lot of speculation that, um, that actually that God, that that's part of God's grievance against them is that they did mm. part of the, they didn't live up to their bargain was a little bit of commingling with, uh, the Canaanites. And so most of the scholars think that maybe like 10% of the actual land that God outlines was actually taken by, uh, so it's ironic because there's sort of these two competing themes. When we read Joshua with modern eyes, we think it's like, it, it, did did God, you know, is God doing ethnic cleansing, right? I mean, it's a massive problem of evil book for us yeah. to grapple with, um, which is a whole subject we could talk about. But when you actually just look at the text within its own time, the problem is almost the opposite problem, which is like, why didn't Israelites do all that God wanted them to take over um, mm-hmm. because they didn't take the full, the full property quote unquote is supposed to be all the way from the Persian Gulf all the way over to the Nile. And so there's this from massive, river to river. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's uh it's like l- twice the size of England uh, of, of all the British Isles in Ireland. So it's just, it's enormous area. So it's, it's kind of, um, of, of course, these are, now have geopolitical right. implications and, and not just now, but like then. So it's possible some of those things were written into the original with geopolitical motivations uh, yeah. to say, this is our property. So I, it, it, some of that is a little hard to sort out, but those themes are definitely there. I think the theme that comes through for me um, so much in Joshua is just victory that there is the sense in which you know, it's it's kind of the Israelites win after most of their history being losing. Mm-hmm. Um, they win, and and there's a sense in which God provides for them victories. So it's kind of a victory book, and then it's certainly a military book. I think that 
that overall it's it's the armies of Israel. It's the only book like it in all of scripture where it's kind of a, it's a conquest narrative. And you really don't have that. Um, even the story of David is so enmeshed with, the story of David is a little bit more like guerrilla warfare. They're yeah. within something and they're the oppressed people. This is an outside conquering nation storming in from the desert. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting read for us. It, it's an anomaly in all of scripture in that sense. We think yeah, of it as so good. normal because of the promised land and all this. We, we think it's obvious that Israel is, is, in, is in Israel. Well, it's not really obvious up to that point for the Canaanites. Yeah, you're right. I mean, up through, so there are 24 chapters. So basically the first half up through about 11 with a little review in 12 after it shifts to all the allotments in the second half, you, you get all these conquest stories, but they're mostly city by city, which I think would actually, a close reading actually would show that it's not a, the narrative's not in total contradiction to the, the to the notion, to the historical evidence that there would have been lots of Canaanite communities still up and running and even the the dominant factor uh, for years to come because you know you you go and take a city and even if you stay there uh although you know these were people from the wilderness and they were shepherds back in goshen so you could totally see them taking a city and then like yeah but we're country people and kind of like you know like you could totally see canaanites coming and taking uh these cities back over time and so even the you mentioned the 10 percent as an extension issue right uh how far they went they didn't go that far north and south. And even within the smaller territory they were in, it wasn't a kind of total possession of the land, but pockets of these little, uh, these uh, former shepherds trying to learn how to become uh, <laughs> yeah. agriculturalists, right? Uh, becoming farmers. Like, you just, you know, it's not going to happen in one generation. It's going to take a long time, which then raises, you know, and, and where we want to camp out is is up to you, but or I guess up to us, but uh, I mean, from what I understand, there are some overtones of a, of a later era in the final form of Joshua. Uh, like you said, the geopolitical overtones, I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, the King Josiah period narrated in second Kings and the kind of mm -hmm. the finding of the law, the restoring of uh, a sort of a centralization of worship down in Jerusalem and a kind of a stamping out of idolatry um, that was up and running. You could see that a big part of that narrative was that was what we were supposed to do all along. And so the story of Joshua, you know, if Deuteronomy and Joshua were written during that time, as some scholars suggest, it's a kind of retelling of that, those early years with an eye to the unfinished business, as it were, uh, of an earlier era. So that it, on first glance, you could read Joshua as saying, we took all this land and then we dropped the ball. Another reading is, well, this was the vision, but it wasn't ever properly executed. And now it's time to finally, you know, to finally execute it. I don't know how that resonates with you, but I like that. What you, that last statement you just made is so resonates with the way, if you read all of the Hebrew Bible together, that's something you take away with the, this, this odd realization that perhaps the most faithful time for the Israelites was in the wilderness, mm -hmm. uh, that 
that they never lived up to, uh, like I joked earlier, 20 minutes after they get into the promised land, they're already chasing other idols. You know, it's, you know, they never really lived up to most of it. And which, of course, is is one way to interpret the law in general in the way that Paul seems to intimate, that it's given hmm. in a way. it's You're not going to be able to live it up. It's a futility. And this is all a grand metaphor. It's a prophetic act that we as a nation are living out to show that redemption needs to come from another source. So that's one way to sort of look at this. I think if you telescope out to all of Joshua, I think another way to, to telescope out to the whole book is to just realize God is carving out of the world, of the geopolitical nations, a people. And so mm-hmm. there is a sense in which there is a chosenness and an elect an electedness to these people that have a particular place and that other people have their place too. I mean, Esau's mentioned in chapter four, which was what we read, not in the section we read, but right after in verse four or five, I think, and Esau's mentioned like Esau, God gave Esau this plot of land, right? So even Esau's mm-hmm. not left out. God, God's kind of moving people around and and arranging it so that these people in, are in this place. And of course, Israel being the most special of them and having a particular role in all of it. So that's a little of how I might do it in chapter 21. You know, God, it, it kind of accentuates that God gave all the land he had promised. So it is the promised land. So it's not a random land. It's not like, well, we got to the other side of the desert and this was the land that happened to be there. It is the land that was promised long ago to Abraham. And sort of the culmination is these last few chapters of Joseph saying, God did it. God gave the land to these people. And so if this hadn't happened, then I don't know if the Israelites would have been like kind of a gypsy nation that moved around um, without uh, people without a home mm-hmm. uh, or what. But in a way, it was essential historically that they start somewhere. And the, what I grapple with is how many people had to die uh, in order for that to be plausible. Yeah. And in a way, I mean, it's almost even today when you think of uh, the Middle East, and it's like, I, I mean, the decisions of the 1940s related to Israel and Palestine and all the complexities and, and heartache of those decisions. And it's like, in a way, the world kind of did a, hey, the Jews need a place. They need a country. And so they partitioned that out and said, you need a country. And it's like, yeah, but there's another story there. I've met Palestinians, yeah. you know, that have told me their stories and you know uh it, you know it, there there is the underside of when the world does that well this is a story of of how god did that he commanded and made happen a subjugation of a place of an of a whole territory and gave it to favored people yeah i, I was reading a book on election that was very helpful to me i think it's called jacob i loved and Hmm. He helps. A, he has a very helpful distinction between the elect, the rejected. So the elected, the rejected, and the non-elect, and how the non-elect is not the same as the rejected. Hmm. Often, the rejected is sometimes the former elect. Right? Uh, those are often differentiations within the elect people of those who were faithless to the covenant. 
But then there's non-elect, and there are passages, of course, in Scripture when the non-elect are to be wiped out. But for the most part, coexistence and hospitality is the norm vis-a-vis the non-elect, right? And and there's not a direct, you know, a direct identification between, you know, modern Jewish statecraft and ancient Israel, uh, nor is there a direct identification between Palestinian people and ancient Canaanites and Philistines. And whatever you want to say about Islam, of course, it's also not a idolatrous religion in a pagan way. It's not a pagan religion. How's that? Might be idolatrous depending on <laughs> your, uh, what kind of theological argument you want to make there. But I mean, uh, Islam is a very strongly anti-pagan, yeah, yeah, an anti-image more strongly than than Christianity historically has been, uh, for sure. True. And they're all, they're iconoclast one. Yeah. Oh my. Well, of course, it's the same period. You know, the the iconoclastic controversy in the Christian East is the same. Starts in the same century as the rise of Islam. So they're actually parallel phenomenon. Yeah. So anyway, I just I I find it a very difficult period to incorporate into my own thinking and theology and ethics precisely because I no longer find the easy way out that I used to have valid anymore. The easy way out is to say, oh, well, land is a spiritual reality. So God has a people, but land is a sort of political thing. And it's like, I'm sorry, the Bible just doesn't read that way. Like land is part is central to the covenant as you know, this was the promise to Abraham. And so there's not an easy eject button um, no, there isn't. I, I've, I mean, I would say the book of Joshua needs to be handled, and I know we'll get into preaching soon on this, but it needs to be handled very delicately because mm. it is, it, you know, if you're talking about the problem of evil, there's sort of different gradations in the problem of evil. You could say, why does God indirectly allow evil? You could say, how does he, does he directly cause some evil yeah. things? You could say, does God directly command something that seems evil? Yeah, right. Um, right. With the 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 <laughs> my Calvinist professors would always say, like, well, if God commands it, it's not evil. Uh, but right. Still, see, that's why I put the word <laughs> "seems" in there. And then the final one, which is, I think, the question of Joshua's conquest is, why does God directly command evil that is unthinkable, that is kind mm. of genocidal, that mm-hmm. is we would use terms like war crimes or jihad to describe what Mm -hmm. happens in Joshua. So now I do think that you can go into Joshua and spiritualize and, and, and apply it to these days, which we'll do in a way that's very helpful. But I think at least behind the scenes, somebody dealing with this and interpreting this book and this passage even understands that like, wow, there was a lot of, a lot of cost, a lot of human cost to proving the point that, that Israel's not going to live up to this covenant and they're going to go worship idols 20 minutes <laughs> later. So it's, it's kind of a, um, if that's how we interpret the way that the story of redemption goes, then man, a lot of carnage was required to get there. And as awesome as the story of Jericho is, which is probably the, the narrative high point, uh, it's, it's, it's the, the movie trailer version of the book mm-hmm. of Joshua is the story of Jericho. There's still a lot of people in Jericho. That die. I mean, only you know, only Rahab got out mm-hmm. of that, uh, and 
and so that's that's the stuff that's a little hard to read and of course because like a lot of propaganda war uh, material you don't tell that other side we don't as americans tell the other side of the story sometimes even like I, it's been fascinating for me to learn about how japan doesn't even really talk about hiroshima uh mm-hmm. and nagasaki all that much there's there's one tiny little memorial to all of our uh, napalm napalming of their cities they don't talk about that either and when they do they sometimes say things like well you know we kind of deserved that and that or that caused that that made sure that there weren't other lives that were lost more would have been lost in famine or they'll say things like that and anytime i encounter those kind of things i'm like wow I, I i do think that we need to grapple with these hard questions yeah well, i'm glad we I'm glad we raised it all of it as we as we had in the preaching time because it's uh I mean, one way we could have approached the whole topic today is, hey, here's all the kind of standard answers to make it you feel okay about this. And guess what? That'll take you five minutes on the internet to go find those. So for listeners, if, you, if you're like looking for a quick answer, you can go find that. But I, I actually appreciated that you and I just kind of talked about uh, how to frame the problem and to think about it and offer that to our listeners to to uh, meditate on and dwell on a little bit. And, and you don't probably have to, no, you, you, you can't uh, sort of solve all that quickly for yourself in order to be able to preach on this text, but to have a little bit of that in mind, I think is uh, an act of faithfulness and humility to kind of have that right. in the mix. Even if it doesn't make it into the sermon, yep. uh, it's helpful for you to know that stuff and have it in your heart for your own faith walk. And then for the one or two people that might talk to you later about right. this and say, but what about this? Then you're not going in blind. Yeah, that's a big part of sermon prep for me is often there's like a bunch of it is just doesn't end up in the, yeah, James, in the teaching. Yeah. James Mishner uh, said that about his books, which already are usually thousand page tomes. But he says, all research is done on the iceberg method. The top Uh, 10% is all you see. The rest is there for ballast and weightiness. Ah, ballast and weightiness. And it it helps you be realized like the kinds of things I might just say offhand uh, when I'm teaching on a text or preaching on it. If I'm aware of how that might, you know, what that might connote or imply, it helps me think twice about how to say it well, you know. Yeah, well, good. Let's uh, let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, David Drury, and we're looking at Joshua chapter 24. So let's explore some, some sermon starters. Where might we go with a text like this if we were teaching or preaching or advising others in their own teaching and preaching? How about you? Where would you want to run with this? Well, I mean, one cool thing about this is for a preacher reading this, it's uh, it has a whole bunch of rhetorical preaching kind of things happening already in it. Hmm. Like, like you could use the rhetorical device that Joshua uses. Hardly any preachers ever have the guts to do this to kind of tell them what is expected of the people in your church and then say, I don't think you're going to be able to do this. Whereas usually Mm. a preacher does the opposite. They say, you can do this. But if you, you could almost pull a Joshua 24, you know, sort of 
in your own voice to your people and yeah. say, this is what God wants from you. This is what it is, but I don't think you're going to be able to do it. I don't, <laughs> it's, I don't think you can do it. What do you think? And, or you could, you know, do like a responsive reading style, give them the script. They're half of the script and say, are you willing to make these commitments? Uh, so that's one way I think that you could approach this is a bit of a uh, sort of put your, put the, the sandals of Joshua on in a way to your people and help them recommit. Yeah, you really could do a, this would be a great example of where like a, even in a church where you're not used to doing responsive reading type things, you could do a little responsive reading, maybe right in the middle or towards the end of a sermon right. where you have already exposited a little bit and to give an opportunity totally. for the people to, especially ni- especially 19 through 20, yes. 25. Or, or inspired by kind of you know historic black um, churches, you could do a, just a repeated refrain that they say, like, mm-hmm. no, we will serve the Lord, verse 22, I guess. Ooh. Like if you could give them just a little phrase that's up on your PowerPoint or something, uh, mm-hmm. be a way for them to get into it if they're not sort of a formalistic. No, that's true. No, but we will serve the Lord. That'd be a good one because you can, and then you could explore all the challenges right. that we face. Yeah, you guys are going to, you, and you, one, one nice thing about that is preachers, we so often talk about the glowy, what's going to be great. And what you could start to do is just say, yeah, you guys are going to be just like every other Christian today. And you can start listing out all the problems of society and of, of modern day churches and of evangelicals capitulation into culture you could hit all that stuff but in a way that they're in on the joke oh gosh um, this is this frankly, would be so fun yeah fr- yeah i know <laughs> frankly you could even you could even start to name things that are problems in your church like yeah. remember in the 1980s when this church split you're going to split again and you're going to do this and that and the other thing or you know how we don't like music sometimes you guys are going to complain about and i mean <laughs> you could really go into the real problems of your church in the voice of Joshua and uh and of course you don't want people to feel like they're promising something that's not true but they can say no we will serve the lord yeah you're not that that's not hard to put that word into the mouth of the people they should be able to yeah. say that what's genius about this sermon idea is it cuts this nice middle way between two kinds of prophetic preaching that go awry so often. One extreme is a kind of figure wagging you just genuinely saying like, you know, you've done this and you need to repent right now Yeah. or which can be good, but, but you got to be careful with that. That can go off the rails. And then the other extreme where, it's all the evils out there in the world and there's all this bad stuff out there. Right. Yeah. And what's nice is this kind of puts it, puts the two together and says, you're going to fall into worldliness, but I'm inviting you right now to, to commit that you will not. Um, and there could be some exposition along the way that would said, even if you do fail, you know, there is a, there is a redemption, there is a hope, but, you can't uh, just sort of whitewash it and pretend that, that totally. you didn't fail. No, you, you are. I like that. No, but we you will know, serve the Lord. And another tool you could use, because one of the problems, and I know we've talked about this in the past about Moses, you know, one of the problems with putting yourself in the role of Joshua is to not let other people be Joshua. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways to get around that is 
you could have little slips of paper that you give to a few people and prearrange it in the service that at some point I am going to stand up and I'm going to have my family stand up if I have one. And I'm going to say, I and my household will serve the Lord. Yeah. And then say, after I do that, I'm going to pause. And then I want you to stand up with your family and you say that. And then you could arrange that with like seven or eight people. And you got to make sure you want to make sure you have like a single mom do that Mm -hmm. or a single dad. You need to make sure you have like a, an older person that lives alone, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe a young single person or a college student or somebody so that they understand like this isn't just for family people or this isn't just for dads, for instance. But if you could prearrange that, I bet you could start a cool little almost, almost an altar call mm-hmm. <laughs> where people at the end start standing up and they start to realize you know, you could even put it up on the screen and people could start to stand and say that. That could be a real moment where people are like, no, we're not going to do those things you said. We're going to serve the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you could have people come to Christ at that moment and say, and cross the line in a way. Yeah, I could see that being a great way to culminate, you know, the sermon where you, you know, you, and it, not to always turn things into an outline, but it's how my brain works. I mean, you could have a sort of opening third could be a sort of a little review that looks back about how God's been faithful Mm -hmm. um, and what he has done for us and expositing the text a little, just kind of putting it in. um, And then you could move to the, this thing we talked about of the, you know, no, but we will serve the Lord. Yeah. uh, Where you kind of, yeah, you raise the problem a little bit. We need to be in go. on the joke. Yeah. But yeah, yes. because you, and you could even talk about how, I mean, getting religion uh, has a tendency to get your house in order and life gets a little better. I mean, there's been studies that show it, you know, people get, uh, people get, uh, get saved, get religion. They straighten their life out and they, over time start to generate wealth. And that has yeah. its own temptations. And that would be one of the parallels here is uh, wilderness was hard, but at least there the temptation was not as strong. Whereas now they're settling in. And how do we settle in and lose track of our first love? And so you could raise some of those challenges. And then you could culminate in that as for me in my house part as a real mm-hmm. crescendo. This is a good sermon. I want to, I kind of want to preach it. <laughs> Yeah, it, you could also go through kind of the what are the, who are the gods across the river of the Euphrates or who are the gods of the Amorite? Like just to list out idolatries and temptations mm-hmm. of the day, you know, the things that can become idols to us could be helpful to list those things out and help people clarify. I mean, this, well, and your little observation links with that back to verse two that they served other gods. These were, you know, you could say how yeah. The kind of gods that Abraham chased after are not the kinds that – not Abraham, but Abraham, Terah and his parents. Yes. The kind that they followed after weren't the kind that this generation was tempted by. Ooh, and in the cool. same way, the, the idols that they chased after yes. are not the ones that tempt us. But the continuity is – yes. you know, that idolatry is in our heart, which comes back to that last line in verse 23. Ooh, I love that. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Yes. Because as 
Calvin likes to say the human mind is a factory of idols, right? We're always uh, <laughs> capable of producing idolatry. You can get you can get idols out of your church, but they're still hmm. in your mind and in your heart. My translation says, "Bend your hearts to the Lord." Ooh, oh yeah, yeah, that's a great word. Bend. I like. So I like simple. that. I like that better than incline, although that's the meaning, but it, it's just a little, it's a little Same more. Uh, it's a shorter word. But it's more, uh, incline is a little more abstract. Ben's a little more concrete. You Physical. Know? Yes. Yeah. Sounds like yeah. something you did to a tree. Yeah. I, I love what you're talking about in terms of it. one, one thing about human nature, which one of, you know, Bart has that great quote about, with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And I think that's beautiful, but what's missing in that is every preacher and every disciple maker needs to understand human nature. Hmm. And so um, just getting to know people and how people think. And I know even in our house church, we always ask the question, what does this passage tell you about God and people? And Mm -hmm. so sometimes we ask, what does this tell us about people? And what you just pointed out made me realize part of the way people work is we're very willing to articulate and condemn the gods across the Euphrates. Huh? Yeah. Or even to reject our parents, gods in Egypt. Right. Mm -hmm. But to admit the gods we are tempted to is another matter. Oh yeah. And what's helpful is to enumerate. So for instance, if we could say, boy, what were the temptations of the, like the colonizing era? Like, we're not colonists anymore, are we? But what were their temptations? Oh, they were tempted by slavery and other things, things that we think we would never do, right? And then you could be like, okay, well, what about your parents? I mean, we all look at our parents yeah. and say, oh, they're workaholics or, or yeah, my yeah, parents yeah. or my great or my yeah. great and my grandpa and grandma and or, or the people that lived in my town, like Marion, Indiana, where you and I both grew up, you know, me more than you. But, uh, you know, it's like, man, Marion has this horrible history. The last public lynching was in Marion, Indiana and, you know, horrible stuff. I'm readily, readily willing to admit all of their idols, but then that sets me up. And maybe that's what Joshua was doing here was setting yeah. them up to be like, Hey, like you have your own temptations to idolatry. Yeah. So bend your heart, bend your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And now that's and good. Make, I think the, that's sure. why the looking back, I think is, is a key piece yeah. of the. So in a way your outline starts with that and looking back, you can deal with idolatry. You can deal with the land, the new temptations. Then maybe you try to do that. I mean, somebody, it would, it would take great effort to craft that, but sort of a moment where they get the experience of, Oh, you're not going to follow God. And then maybe some kind of a, yeah. uh, uh, you know, call out from the crowd. And then I think you could have people, you know, this is one of those rare passages that they literally make, like they carve stuff and sell them in Christian from verse 15, choose this day whom you will serve. I and my household will serve the Lord or whoever it is that you've in your translation. That's obviously at some point that needs to feature prominently or maybe even be the title choose. Yeah. Yeah. Choose. I dig it. And there, there's the review. It's right there. So you could take 15 as a good jumping off point. It's choose this day whom you will serve. The gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, mm-hmm. or Adonai, the one true God. And that signals both the 
the idols of the past and the idols of the present. So that mm-hmm. sets up nicely that framework. Man, this is good stuff. Anything you want to add to that? I do want to point out that it is Euphrates in the original. Um, I think it's the river in a lot of a uh, lot of our translations. But I think it's. I just I, well, since you're going to bring it up, let's check. <laughs> I know this is more what we do in the first section. I don't care. But, uh, That's just a general framework. I could care less about that. Because I think it's, you have that when you're prepping for a sermon. You at the last second, you're like, "Oh, wait a second. I know Scott yep. Neff, one of the great preachers of our age. He always on Sunday mornings, and most people don't see him before he preaches, but I often would when I worked for him for five years. And he would be reading like a commentary thirty minutes before his sermon, <laughs> and I would go pray for him. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, Dude, I'm late. the kind of guy like, I'm done with the commentaries by Thursday. I'm manuscripting, right? And uh, he's like, no, I, I want to keep learning right up until I get up there. Yeah. Awesome. So anyway, yeah. is it Euphrates? Am I wrong? Well, it's, you're, you're right and you're wrong all at the same time. So it's Nahar, which is just the word river. But, but whenever you see Hanahar, the river, that means... The Euphrates, because uh, so it's, it's the, the river. The, it's so it's the like saying the, like it's the like, Ohio State it, University. Or when you lived in, uh, no, here's here'd be the parallels. When I lived in New Jersey, when you say the city, you mean New York City. You do not uh, mean uh, Philadelphia. Yeah. It doesn't matter how big and awesome Philadelphia is. <laughs> the parallel. city means New York City, right? Good parallel. Um, so, yeah. But, hey, a little commentary uh, right under the wire. <laughs> just snuck it in there i'm glad you saw the original there good well i mean this is good and i know for me i want to choose to serve god even with all of the problems that we talked about that i i have struggled with through the years in my faith and the problem of evil i think this book really brings that out and it's part of my struggle but i still want to choose to serve god and Mm -hmm. i think giving one of the great opportunities of preaching is you give people that opportunity to choose and this mm-hmm. is an altar call passage, if there ever was one. Yeah. Nah, you're not gonna. You're, you're not gonna be faithful, David. You're gonna give up on this. No, I will serve the Lord, John. There it is. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, thanks so much, uh, Dave, for giving an hour of your time to to me and to the text and to our listeners. Appreciate it a ton and. Thanks, as always, to uh, Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for uh, donating the theme music. And thanks to you, our listeners. We appreciate your time and and, uh, getting the word out about the show and uh, joining us uh, week in and week out. I appreciate you a ton. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.